Good morning, City of Hope. It is so nice to be with you this Sunday morning. I've been overwhelmed by the amount of prayers made on my behalf for this sermon and for the amount of encouragement and support I've received this week. So thank you. Really, over the last month, everyone here has been such a blessing in the way you've served one another, in your presence and prayers and your commitment to our local body and to Christ. I want to commend you for your response to the news regarding the Wood family transition. Well done, and thank you for being an example to me. This morning, may God bless us to see Christ exalted, to grow in wisdom, and to receive the Lord's provision for his church with gratitude. As many of you know, we've been praying daily in the mornings, Thursday evenings, and throughout the week via our church prayer calendar. Hopefully you have taken this time to meditate on Colossians 1, verses 9 through 20. It's an incredible section of scripture that gives us insight into the apostles, Apostle Paul's heart for the church of Colossae, and insight into the nature, character, and work of our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. This morning, I'd like us to study Colossians 1, verses 3 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there now? Colossians 1, 3 through 23. In the book of Colossians, Paul is taking the opportunity to encourage this Gentile church led by Epaphras, which has been faithfully exhibiting faith, love, and hope. At the same time, Paul is warning them against some false teachings and cultural pressures that were starting to creep into the church. In a familiar epistle format, he prays for the church, elevates the person and work of Jesus Christ, discusses his suffering as an apostle for Christ, addresses the cultural pressures the church is facing, and then calls the church to a faithful response to the good news of the gospel. He begins in chapter 1 by praying for the church in the most profound of ways. It's a beautiful prayer for them to grow in their relationship with and understanding of God, and it's an exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of and pleasing to the Lord. He reminds them of their redemption and then reminds them of the nature and character of Christ in a wonderful five-verse poem, which we are going to unpack. Now, surrounding this prayer for the church and the poem of Jesus, Paul commends and calls the Colossians to hope in the gospel. Join me as we read Colossians 1, 3 to to 23. And as I read, please try to identify the two mentions of hope of the gospel surrounding Paul's prayer for the church and his poem regarding Jesus Christ. My goal for our time is simply this that we grow convinced that the gospel is for everyday life, that everything we go through, highs, lows, happy, sad, hard, easy, painful, joyful, sorrowful, grand, mundane, or spectacular, it all falls under the good news of the gospel. So let's read God's word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing 
as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name we come thanking you for the richness of your word, the reality of your kingdom, the wonder of our redemption, the fullness of your grace, and the supremacy of Christ. Open our ears and our hearts so that we may hear from you today, and keep me from error, protect your flock, Magnify yourself and be exalted in this hour of worship amongst your people all over this world. Okay, let's begin. In verse 4 and 5, Paul is mentioning that he thanks God because of the faith that the church has in Jesus Christ and the love they have for one another, faith and love. He indicates that these two things, faith in Christ and love for each other, was fueled by powered by, or a byproduct of the hope they had laid up in heaven, and that they knew about this heavenly hope because they heard the gospel, the word of truth. And so Paul is starting off this letter essentially saying, I'm glad that you heard and believed the gospel, and that you have such a sure hope of a heavenly reward because of this gospel, that it is now producing faith and love towards God and man. Now, I want to make sure we understand that Paul is not using hope here in the way we typically use it, as in the act of hoping, 
like I hope I get to play disc golf tomorrow, or I hope I get a raise or a promotion, or I hope all my kids nap at the same time, or I hope I don't have to do my schoolwork tomorrow, or I hope I get married in 2021. No, he is addressing the objective truth of their hope, which he states is the reward prepared for believers in heaven. So the hope is not in something uncertain, it is in something guaranteed, promised, and ultimately produces faith and love. Now skipping past verses 9 through 20, which is Paul's prayer in his poem about Jesus Christ, I'd like us to look briefly at verses 21 to 23. Again here, Paul mentions the hope of the gospel when encouraging the Colossians to continue in their faith and to be stable and steadfast by not shifting from the hope of the gospel. He reminds them that they were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil, but now are reconciled with God by Christ's death and are now blameless and above reproach. But it is important to note that Paul calls the church to continue in the faith. He calls them to steadfastness, this should make us think of James's call to consider it all joy when we face trials of various kinds, because why? The testing of our faith produces what? Yes, steadfastness. And that when steadfastness has completed its work, we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now all this, Paul states, can be accomplished by not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Think about this. Our, our endurance, our ability to remain stable, to let steadfastness produce in us perfection and completion is accomplished by not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So just to recap, surrounding Paul's prayer for the church in his poem about Jesus, which I promise we will get to, he is on one side commending the church for their faith in God and love towards each other, which he states is a byproduct of their hope in the gospel. And on the other side, he is calling the church to endure and remain in this faith and love um, by not shifting from the gospel. The gospel produces the fruit of faith and love on one hand, and allows for that fruit to endure into perfection and completion in the face of trials and temptations on the other hand. At this point, we really should probably start to define terms. What is this gospel and what is the hope of the gospel? But we won't. We're going to see how Paul does this through his upcoming prayer and poem. Now, in the middle of all this gospel hope and Paul's encouragement regarding faith and love and the call to endure and not shifting in the hope of the gospel, let's see what Paul prays for the church and what he has to say about Jesus. Let's look at his prayer for the Colossians. In verses 9 and 10, Paul is praying that the Colossians would be filled with knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He indicates that an understanding of God's will perpetuates the ability for the Colossians to walk in a way that is worthy of Jesus Christ, to please Jesus Christ, to bear good fruit in their work, and increase in their knowledge of God. So as we grow in the understanding of the will of the Father, we honor Christ, we do good works, and we know God more deeply. 
Have you ever stopped to think about that? When we actively pray to know the will of God, when we read his word to discover his will, when we meditate on, study, listen to, and delight in God's word, we are doing exactly what Paul is praying for for the Colossians. And this pursuit of God's will produces in us these same things, an ability to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. It allows us to please him. We bear good fruit and we grow in our understanding of the heart of our Heavenly Father. So imagine what happens in the absence of pursuing and knowing the will of the Father. Now I do want to pause here briefly to talk about bearing fruit. Where do we first hear this imagery of bearing fruit? And what do you think of when you hear the phrase? You may think of the parable of the sower when the seed falling on the good soil bears fruit. Or you may think of Jesus commenting on his relationship with our relationship with him as branches on a vine that bear good fruit. You may think of the many times Paul mentions bearing fruit or his list of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You may think of the book of Jeremiah and the tree planted by the water whose roots go deep and never fails to bear good fruit. You may even consider the connection with the Garden of Eden to God's original command to Adam and Eve and his invitation for them to partake with him in the care and nurture of his creation. He tells them to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue or work the earth and have dominion over his creation. He is inviting them to be useful members of his kingdom and to enjoy his presence in the garden as they live and work together. You can envision, imperfectly so, this garden kingdom where God and man are in constant fellowship, living and working together for the benefit of everything, unstained by sin. Men, women, and children benefiting from their relationship with God and each other. From God's love and affection, they benefit from the work of their hands and the enjoyment of building creating, nurturing, advancing, and caring for God's kingdom. Creation benefits from the care from both humanity and God, and God enjoys the unbroken fellowship with his creation in an unfallen state. He enjoys the affection of his children, being glorified in all that he has made, and sharing that with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and his people. And this idea of kingdom and bearing fruit and working with God and growing in love with God is something I'd like us to look out for as we continue through this passage. Moving on to verses 11 to 14, Paul prays that this knowledge of God would strengthen them with power and God's glorious might so that they can endure with patience, joy, and thanksgiving. Again, remember James's exhortation to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Here again, Paul is calling for endurance and then calls them to thanksgiving. Implied in all that Paul is saying here regarding the need for the knowledge of God's will, the power of his glorious might, and the need to endure is the simple truth that we live in a fallen world. And in this world, we will have troubles. Sin affects creation, it affects our relationships, it affects our minds, bodies, hearts, and attitudes. And how does Paul know this? Well, he is writing this letter from prison, 
and not his first stint in prison either. He's been beaten, mocked, falsely accused, and imprisoned for Christ. And he knows that for a Gentile church under Roman rule, hardships and temptations to compromise were bound to reach Colossae. He also was well aware of his personal struggle with the flesh, confessing that he does what he doesn't want to do and fails to do what he wants to do because of this tug of war between the flesh and the spirit. But in verses 12 to 14, Paul drives home and starts to define what we have already started to discuss, the hope of the gospel, which allows the Colossians to exhibit faith and love and also to endure in times of hardship. He reminds them to give thanks to the Father who qualified them and gives them an inheritance along with the saints in light. This inheritance and commitment and covenant with God previously reserved for Israel is now theirs through Christ. Paul discusses how God delivered them out of the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom they have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, God's deliverance through Christ completes for the Gentiles and for all who put their hope in Christ the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Similarly, we are delivered from being children of Satan into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where we are now co-heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We are righteous in this kingdom, redeemed in this kingdom, forgiven in this kingdom, and restored into partnering again with God in his kingdom, just as we were in the garden before the fall. You see, being transferred into Christ's kingdom is the restoration and reversal of of the fall of humanity and the fracture in our relationship with God and and with his creation when we rebelled in the garden. God is returning us to a place where we have fellowship with him, intimacy with him, where we have a purpose and a job to do as those made in his image. And this is also possible because through Jesus Christ we have redemption. And this is all possible because through Jesus Christ we have redemption, the payment, the offering, and the sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, the gospel is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that by the very means of establishing his kingdom here on earth and over heaven, He defeated sin and death for those who declare with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, achieving for them redemption and forgiveness. This is for us, church. We are members in this kingdom under Jesus Christ. We together are under his care and his rule, and everything we go through is for his glory and for our good. Hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord, There is no better news we could get, period. But who is this Jesus Christ that he can claim to restore and establish or reestablish all that has been lost in our relationship with God the Father because of the the fall? Who is he to claim authority over all heaven and earth? And how can his sacrifice magically allow him to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach to the Father? Well... I'm glad you asked, the Apostle Paul says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember, 
you only have to go two commandments deep to know that God does not want his people worshiping images because he describes himself as a jealous God. So why is it that Jesus can be an image of God? It is because worship of Jesus is worship of God himself because Jesus is God. And because in the person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell here on earth. So when we worship Jesus Christ, when we exalt him, we glorify the one who dwells fully in the person of Jesus Christ, the triune God of the Bible. Further, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. This designation shows that Christ exhibits all the rights as a firstborn son in whom all the family, riches, wealth, and possessions belong, and that he has dominion over all creation, God's kingdom. Verse 16 states that in him all things were created, things in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things, everything created through him and for him. This should make us think of John, who indicates that all things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or recall the first chapter of Hebrews, who indicates that God created the world through his son, Jesus Christ. This verse is remarkable, remarkable, because as the author of all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, Jesus inherently has the power and the rights of rule over creation. This is why the good news of the gospel is that Christ is Lord and that the kingdom of God is at hand. He made it. He is King Jesus, the one who can offer a single sacrifice for sins, past, present, and future. He is the Lamb worthy to open the scroll and sit at the right hand of the Father. This is also why it takes a lifetime to appreciate that the one who has authority over everything freely gave himself up to death on the cross so that sin and death would no longer reign. What does this mean for us? This means that Jesus is invested in us and in all his creation. When you or I build something, when we create something, craft something, nurture something, or even purchase something, by nature we are proud of it protective of it, affectionate towards it, and invested in its well-being. This is no different with Christ and his creation. In his kingdom, you are a valuable member because he made you and because he purchased you. He bought you with the price of his perfect obedience to death. He is invested in your well-being, your happiness, your effectiveness, and your growth in faith and love towards God and man. And he employs everything that happens in your life to make you mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That is likely what Paul means when he says that Jesus holds all things together. Jesus' love, affection, investment in, and care over all creation and his ability to restore and reconcile all things through his atonement is at the very fabric of the kingdom of God. In verse 18, Jesus is described as the head of the body, the church. Jesus is leading a new people, fully reconciled with God, 
in relationship with God in this new kingdom. In Eden, Adam and Eve were given the opportunity to have God dwell with them and commune with them before the fall. But because of their rebellion, God's presence with humanity was limited to mediators like Abraham and Moses through prophets, priests, and kings, the tabernacle, the temple, and through sacrifices. It was not until the fullness of time had come that God sent Jesus and with him all the fullness of himself to dwell with his people on earth, to redeem the broken relationship, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the cross truly was the most pivotal moment in all of redemptive history. To prove just how upside down his kingdom is, God saw fit that as Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he was being raised on a throne. As he was crowned with thorns and mockingly clothed with linens, he was being adorned a king. As Pilate hung a sign over his head of his crimes, he was declared a king. And as he uttered, it is finished, the enthronement of Jesus had taken place and the kingdom of God was ushered in. With his death, he put death to death. He made peace by the blood of his cross. So church, Jesus is our head. He is our king and his kingdom is at hand. This is your gospel hope. You are members of God's kingdom now. You have been forgiven. You have a purpose in this kingdom of God. And you have a sure hope that everything you are going through, God will use for your good and for his glory. And this is true for everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So maybe you've heard the phrase in the past that we aren't just saved by the gospel, but that we grow by the gospel. Well, this has always been confusing to me because of how I historically define the gospel and gospel hope. I grew up hearing that the gospel was that my sins were forgiven and that if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse me of my sins and and all unrighteousness and I get to go to heaven. Awesome, and amen, and sincerely, amen. But I've not historically thought about the kingdom of God and my role as a member of the body of Christ as being a foundational part of the gospel. I haven't considered that Christ's rule and authority over all aspects of creation and my life are part of the gospel hope that I have. And I definitely haven't historically thought about how Christ's rule over everything should inform how I participate in kingdom mission, such as how I perform my job, how I seek to steward the earth, how I seek to love my neighbor or share the gospel with the lost or seek justice for the vulnerable, which all seems like a no-brainer in a kingdom where Jesus is king. One of the biggest drawbacks about not regularly acknowledging and believing that Jesus is ruling over a current kingdom and having authority over all things has been my inability to cope with hardship and process trials. When hardship and trials seem arbitrary and their outcomes are unknown, it's extremely difficult to consider it pure joy. 
or even to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. But when we know that a loving Savior who holds all things together and who works everything for our good is on the throne of his kingdom, we can begin to trust that no matter how difficult or arbitrary a season may seem, we can endure, remain stable and steadfast, and not shift in gospel hope. Please bear with me. I debated for a while whether to share this, but I personally think it's just too good not to share in closing. There's a great cinematic scene in one of my all-time favorite movies, Karate Kid. It's a scene that always makes me tear up every time I watch it, and I don't think I realized why until I was preparing for this sermon. You see, Karate Kid is a story about a scrawny high school boy, Daniel LaRusso, who moves to a new town and quickly finds himself on the wrong side of a group of the Cobra Kai, a local karate dojo. He's regularly getting in fights with members of the Cobra Kai and begins growing weary of getting beat up day after day. One night, while being chased by the Cobra Kai members, Daniel LaRusso is saved by Mr. Miyagi, an elderly man who studied karate while growing up in Japan. After witnessing Mr. Miyagi dispatch a group of Cobra Kai with relative ease, Daniel implores Mr. Miyagi, teach me, teach me how to do that. Mr. Miyagi reluctantly agrees and proceeds to train Daniel. So Daniel eagerly shows up on the first day of training, and Mr. Miyagi seemingly ignores Daniel's request to learn karate and requires him instead to wax about six cars. I didn't fact check that. Daniel spends the entire day waxing the cars in a very specific manner that Miyagi requires. Wax on with one sponge, wax off with the other, likely thinking that this is his prepayment for his karate lessons. Well, this pattern proceeds for four straight days. Daniel shows up ready to learn karate, and Mr. Miyagi gives him a menial, labor-intensive task. First, it was wax the cars, then paint the backyard fence up, down, up, down, then sand the deck in the backyard, small circles, and finally paint the house side to side. Well, about halfway through painting the house on the fourth day in the middle of the night, Daniel loses it as he begins to feel like Mr. Miyagi is just taking advantage of him for free labor and has no intention of following through on his promise to teach him karate. He explodes. I'm being your slave. That's what I'm doing here. We made a deal. You're supposed to be teaching, and I'm supposed to be learning. For four days, I've been killing myself doing exactly what you said, and I haven't learned a thing. Miyagi says, you've learned plenty. Daniel retorts, yeah, I've learned plenty, all right. I've learned to sand your decks, wash your cars, and paint your fence and house. I'm out of here. I'm out of here, man. And he storms off. Miyagi raises his voice. Daniel, son, come here. Daniel reluctantly listens. And Miyagi says, show me sand the floor. And Daniel starts to frustratingly move his hands in circles. And Miyagi corrects him with the form he had shown him when sanding the floors the days prior. He does the same for painting the house, the fence, and for waxing the cars. Daniel, not understanding what is happening, is simply going through the motions with minimal efforts and focus. Sorry. Miyagi patiently works with him 
and gets him to remember the four movements he used for the cars, fence, deck, and floors with intention and care. He then requests one more time, show me, wax on, wax off. Daniel half-heartedly raises his hand as Miyagi unexpectedly strikes an attack, throwing fists in Daniel's direction. Daniel instinctively blocks Miyagi's punch, stunned to discover that the wax-on, wax-off movement he spent a whole day unknowingly perfecting was his only protection. Daniel's jaw drops. Miyagi says, show me, paint the fence. Again, Miyagi explodes, and Daniel, now equipped with the necessary tools, is able to thwart his attack. Daniel's eyes widen in disbelief. Miyagi repeats for the last two movements. Daniel defending the attack still in stunned silence. Finally, Miyagi slowly approaches Daniel, snarls, and holds nothing back, throwing eight successive punches and kicks from differing angles, forcing Daniel to use a combination of the four movements to defend himself from Miyagi's assault. And Daniel does it, shocked, completely disbelieving the realization of what just happened washing over him. Miyagi bows, and Daniel departs in silence, recognizing that what he perceived as an uncaring... Sorry, jeez. That what he perceived as an uncaring master, arbitrary and selfish in requests, dishonest about his intentions, was all the while nurturing and caring and providing Daniel with exactly what he wanted, needed, and agreed to. So ridiculous. <laughs> Sorry. As members of the kingdom of God, and as children under the care and rule of Jesus Christ, when we face trials, do we trust in his loving posture towards us, do we trust that he is preparing us to be members of his kingdom and walk, walking in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, being well-pleasing to him? When the car waxing and fence painting of our lives requires our attention and tempts us to despair, will we remember that the one who is asking us to endure and not shift from the hope of the gospel is the same one who created all things and the one who is holding them all together? and who bought us with a price and redeemed us for his glory. As a church, how are we going to respond in this season? We've had two pastoral transitions in five years. We've had potential leaders depart. We've had friends move away, and we've suffered the loss of one of our younger, youngest members in Baby Eden. We have limited number of volunteers, and some of us have experienced burnout. It has not been easy. I'm not sure what the future holds for this church, nor do I think we need to know right now. But what I have grown convinced of, as we have spent this time in prayer over the past three weeks, is that Jesus Christ is the head of his church and is the head of City of Hope Church. That he is using these seasons for our good and for kingdom purposes, which we may not yet realize and that our response to these trials is important because it communicates what we believe about the gospel hope we have 
and what we believe about the nature and character of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So the gospel really is for everyday life because Jesus is Lord. God bless you and amen. Let's turn to the Lord now, confessing our sins together. Let's do this corporately. Heavenly Father, we come before you confessing our sins, neglecting to hope in the word of truth,